So we turn in the God's Word to Job, Job chapter 22, again the entirety of that chapter. God's holy and inspired Word from the Old Testament, given to us as people, so give your attention to the reading of it, Job chapter 22, God's Word. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable? God? Can he who is wise be profitable to him? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing, and strip the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore snares are all around you. And sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. Is not God high in the heavens? See the highest star, how lofty they are. But you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil him so that he does not see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. Will you keep to the old way that wicked men have trod. They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. They said to God, depart from us, and what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things. But the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad, and the innocent mocks at them, saying, surely our adversaries are cut off, and what they left the fire has Consumed. Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tent, if you laid gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter and it will be established for you and light will shine on your ways. For when they are humbled, you say it is because of pride, but he saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent. He or uh, not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So what's your estimation on modern media? That is, if you had to grade the various news outlets and papers, how would you score them? Well, if the polls are accurate, many have a very low view of the media nowadays, for there is a feeling that the media isn't very trustworthy. 
And there's many reasons for this. Some will say the media is biased, which is true. We are all biased, and the media has always been. Others will point to how some outlets have gone so tribal because they cater only to what their audience wants in order to be more profitable. And this is troublesome. And yet at the end of the day, what seems to be the most serious is that some media outlets appear to be practically making stuff up. Whether by glaring omissions or sneaky editing, they knowingly, at least it seems, present a false picture. Now, when it comes to our friends, we understand that they can be biased. We're sympathetic with their honest mistake. We understand their idiosyncratic interpretations or perspective on a particular event. But if a friend just makes things up that are false, they lose credibility and our trust. A bald lie in one area makes us suspicious about everything else they say. And sadly, within the dialogue of Job, we seem to have reached this point. For now, it's time for Eliphaz to make his way back up on stage. This is the third and final speech that we get to hear of Eliphaz in the book. And where the friends showed up to comfort and console Job, as you've noticed, it's become more of a backyard pinata party, with each friend taking a whack at Job to see who can get him to crack and spill his goods. And Eliphaz is eager for his turn as he launches into a series of rhetorical questions, verses 2 through 4. Can a man be profitable to God? Does God rebuke you, Job, for your piety? Now, Eliphaz intends these as obvious facts. All the assumed answers to the questions are a firm no. Thus, the force of them are verbal rebukes. He is chiding Job for denying these self-evident truths. And on the surface, Eliphaz's points seem valid. Do humans profit or are they useful to God? Can even a wise man be useful to the Almighty? Well, the Lord is the transcendent, eternal, self-existing God. The Almighty, who is perfect and all-sufficient in and of himself, surely does not need mortals. This feels like a fitting praise of God's majesty. Then he adds, is the Almighty pleased if you are righteous? Is there gain for God if you make your ways blameless? But these two lines feel strange. Surely, supposedly, the Lord doesn't need our obedience or uprightness. But isn't that kind of the point of righteousness? It's pleasing to God. The Lord may not need our godliness, but he wants it. Finally, he asked Job, does God judge you for your godly fear? Will he bring you into judgment for your reverent piety? And again, this seems or appears self-evident. God doesn't judge someone for their obedience. So, in Job's case, if he was upright, God would surely not be reproving him. And yet, after these questions, on a second thought, and according to the prologue of the book, this is exactly what God has been doing. Why did God bring this trial on Job? Well, it was precisely because Job was the most blameless man on earth. Moreover, God 
does take pleasure in the righteousness of his people. He gains glory when women and men keep their ways blameless. And the Lord uses humans and sages for all different purposes. Therefore, what Eliphaz intends as obvious facts are not accurate. He speaks of God abstractly from a philosophical notion of transcendence and not from revelation. Eliphaz's questions reveal a concept about God instead of being a description of how God reveals himself. He may intend well enough in trying to magnify God, but Eliphaz is shooting wide of the mark. Next, though, he drops his bombshell of a question with now an obvious yes answer. Isn't your evil manifold? Are not your sins endless? Now, this is bold. Eliphaz just comes right out and condemns Job as a man whose sins have no end. Now, this has been implied and somewhat stated by the friends a couple times before, but this is the most in-your-face charge up to this point. He says that Job's sins are massive and endless. And Eliphaz does not remain general, but he gets into the weeds with specific indictments of exact felonies. Job has impounded pledges for no reason. He confiscated clothes to leave people naked. He refused food and water to the hungry. He banished the widows with nothing, and he even broke the arms of orphans. Powerful men bully and terrorize others, and this is how Job has behaved. Now, these are detailed accusations, but together they do form a more of a stereotypical picture. That is, in Israel and among their ancient neighbors, the paradigm upright person kindly dealt uh, with widows and orphans, and they were generous with charity towards the needy. So for Job to oppress the lowly and to be stingy portrays him as the quintessential evil man. His depravity is inhuman and cruel. Well, Job mentioned a few chapters ago that his friends had filed no explicit charges against him, and so now Eliphaz meets this challenge with concrete indictments. And yet these allegations jump off the page as problematic. Namely, where is his proof? Eliphaz presents no evidence for these crimes. He summons no witness to testify. He names no victims as plaintiffs. Additionally, these accusations contradict what God said about Job in heaven, which means Eliphaz is here bearing false witness. He has no evidence that Job is guilty, Rather, he is literally making this stuff up. He's fabricating crimes against Job. Indeed, it's hard to see any other way than Eliphaz is being, is, is being a, a, a bold-faced liar at this point. For how can he be simply mistaken? With his erroneous understanding on retribution or his abstract view of God's transcendence, we can show sympathy to this. He means well, but he's misguided. But these false charges can be nothing but fabricated lies with malevolent intent. 
Job is, or Eliphaz is lying against Job to hurt him. This shows the danger of bad theology as it often goes looking for its own facts and it will even make them up. Bad theology concocts facts to keep itself on life support. In this way, error leads to more falsehood and lies beget lies. Indeed, with these lies, Eliphaz has become a false witness to join Team Satan. He indicts Job as a chief sinner who has no use and has no contribution to God. This friend Eliphaz isn't being so friendly. He's become a foe. And Eliphaz is not finished yet. Next, he shifts to condemn Job's theology. Eliphaz moves from behavior to belief. In scripture, theology, or bad theology, can be just as sinful as actual crimes. Hence, Eliphaz starts by affirming what he thinks to be objective orthodoxy, verse 12. God is higher than the heavens. He's loftier than the highest of the stars. Now, we've seen Eliphaz like to beat the drum of the Almighty's transcendent glory. And it is against this orthodoxy that Job has so egregiously transgressed. He even cites what Job has spoken. He says, what does God know? The Lord hides himself in thick clouds. He's veiled in darkness. God's too far above to see or know what's happening here on earth and to take notice of Job and his little life. Eliphaz then blames Job for accusing God of ignorance. Namely, he's so lofty that he doesn't know anything about little old Job. Job, according to Eliphaz, uses the transcendence of God to deny his omniscience. Particularly, since Job or God cannot see Job, Job is free to act however he feels like it. Now, this would be a serious doctrinal impiety of Job if he actually said it. Yet Eliphaz literally quotes the words of Job, but if you tediously comb through all the words of Job up to this point, you cannot find Eliphaz's quote. You cannot even discover this sentiment in different words. In fact, Job is harped on the opposite. He's repeated over and over how God's constant gaze crushes him. Job has said, look away from me, God, you watcher of men. You watch all my ways. You seek my sin. You fix your gaze on me. The heavy sight of God and his all-consuming knowledge has made Job plead for God to look away. Turn away from me, O Lord. Therefore, Eliphaz continues his lies by putting words in Job's mouth that he never said. He's literally making this stuff up. How much more bold can you get? This is over the top, and he keeps going. Next, he places Job's, quote, immoral theology on the ancient path of the wicked. Now, this is the classic old wickedness to think that God does not see you. But then he quotes what the wicked say to God. Depart from us. What can the Almighty do? That is, this is Job's thoughts, according to Eliphaz. 
And this first line of verse 17, Job did say in chapter 21, verse 14. Yet Job said this about the wicked. This wasn't what he actually thought. Thus, Eliphaz now attributes a bad idea to Job, which isn't even his own. And next, he plagiarizes him in verse 18. The line that counts of the wicked is far from me. Job said this in 21.16 to disavow any connection he has with the prosperous wicked. And Job said this to assert his own innocence. But now Eliphaz takes this line as his own. No, he says, I'm the rightful owner of being far from the wicked. Job, you cannot say this, but I can. Try as you might, there is no other way to evaluate this than the deceitful use of language that is appalling. He puts words in Job's mouth. He steals from Job what he wants for himself. The dishonesty is kind of hard to believe. It makes you want to say, are you seeing this? And Eliphaz then puts the cherry on the top of his argument in verses 19 and 20. He brings up the schadenfreude of the righteous. The righteous see the wicked cut off and consumed, and they rejoice. The innocent laugh at the demise of the wicked. Now, such joy at the judgment of sinners is found in the book of Psalms. There is a holy way to rejoice in the Lord's punishment of the wicked. The issue here isn't about the propriety of such joy, but it is that Eliphaz uses it against Job. In the picture he paints, it's obvious that Eliphaz is the happy, righteous person and Job is the perishing, wicked one. The implication, then, is inescapable. Eliphaz is now rejoicing in the downfall of Job. He's happy that fire fell from heaven and devoured his flock. He's telling Job, it's right for me to be joyful about your suffering. I'm justified to mock you for your evil. I am both innocent and righteous. So much for comforting and compassion. For Eliphaz now alters his song to happy music over Job's loss and agony. Though for Eliphaz... He thinks his joy serves a purpose. He's happy that God has punished Job's endless felonies, for this has the chance to yield repentance. Thus, Eliphaz closes out this chapter with a long exhortation to Job to repent. He says, agree with God, be reconciled to God. Look to the instruction from God's mouth. Lay up his words in your heart. Now, of course, by God's words, Eliphaz means his own. He very much thinks of himself as the official and authoritative spokesman for the Almighty. Eliphaz basically claims for himself the office of prophet, even though God has not given the office to him. Yet despite this, Eliphaz's summons to repentance is largely sound. The call to humble yourself to submit to God's instructions and to repent, these match healthy and sincere repentance as it's found in the rest of Scripture. 
Likewise, the promises accompanying the repentance are not fallacious. Return to God and you will be restored. Cast injustice from your tent and good will come to you. These are fitting. In fact, to his credit, Eliphaz moves beyond mere physical blessings here. Previously, the friends have highlighted the earthly rewards for repentance, namely health, family, and honor. But here, Eliphaz posits God himself as the prize. As he calls Job to cast his gold in the dust, to consider his gold like worthless river rocks, then the Almighty will be Job's gold and his sparkling silver. Confess your sinful love of money, and then God will be your precious Job. And this is overall good. If our piety and repentance is merely for physical blessings, if it's just a work to get paid, then this is not God-centered repentance. The heart of true confession sees harmony and love with God as its true target. Godly repentance values your relationship with God as primary. Eliphaz is treading on good soil here. And it continues as he encourages Job to delight in the Lord. He can pray to him and be heard. He can pay his vows in gratitude. When Job is reconciled to God, then light will shine on him again. And so complete will be God's restoration. If Job humbles himself, then the Lord will actually use Job to save others. As he says, God saves the lowly, and he will be delivered up through the purity of Job's hands. That is, Job will become a prime example for others. If a notorious sinner like Job can repent and be restored by God, then others will see this and follow suit. The grace exhibited in Job will encourage others to also seek the mercy of God. And again, this is quite solid. In fact, since verse 21, everything Eliphaz has mentioned about repentance feels feels very gospel-esque. It aligns smoothly with what we find in the New Testament. Casting aside your love of money to prize God, the assurance of restoration if you repent, and the promise that God hears humble prayer. This is good. Indeed, if all we had was verse 21 to the end of the chapter, we could mistake Eliphaz for an evangelist in the book of Acts. But this is not all he has said. Indeed, his healthy call to repentance is founded upon what he said first, which was terribly unhealthy. Eliphaz rooted his gospel appeal in blatant and malicious lies. He falsely charged Job with endless sins of the worst sort. He basically excommunicated Job for his heretical theology. He misquoted Job. He put words in his mouth. He plagiarized him, and he rejoiced at Job's misery as well-deserved. Eliphaz took the upright Job, made up sins about him, to paint him as a heretic felon. He trampled Job in the mud while singing a happy song, only to turn around and preach the gospel to him. Eliphaz built his gospel upon the sandy substructure of the lie 
which means it fails. You cannot construct grace upon falsehoods and fabrications, made-up facts and imaginary truths a gospel do not make. Indeed, if Job confesses to these false crimes, if he admits that Eliphaz is right, then he's given up on his integrity. In the wager with God, the evil one precisely said that Job would forsake his piety to get out of his suffering. He bet that Job would choose a lie over enduring his agony. Thus with honey, Eliphaz tempts Job to agree with his lies and false testimony. Particularly, the repentance Eliphaz calls for means that Job has to accept the points of verses 2 through 4. Namely, that God is not pleased with Job's righteousness, God would not reprove Job for his godly fear, and God has no use for humans whatsoever. But all these points God himself affirmed in heaven. The Lord declared his delight in the upright love of Job. The Lord agreed to let the evil one terrorize Job precisely because Job's reverent integrity. And the Lord did have a use for Job by Job's uprightness, by Job persevering through trials. The Lord was glorified in Job as his covenant partner and friend. Indeed, these truths show forth God as a covenantal Lord. For Eliphaz to deny them is for him to diminish the covenant of the Lord to redeem for himself a people of his own affection. And yet, in reality, this is one of the brightest beams of God's glory. Sure, it's true and wonderful that the Lord is higher than the heavens. He is above all, dependent on none, and eternally perfect in and of himself. Mortals cannot help or benefit God in himself. But this is not how God chose to conduct himself towards us. Instead, the Lord covenanted himself with us, and he set forth in the covenant that righteousness is pleasing in his sight. And the Lord chose to glorify himself through us and our salvation. Even more so, God ordained to judge the righteous one, so that we might have a true foundation for repentance and restoration. The Father sent forth the Son, Jesus Christ, to be judged in our stead, so that we might become his redeemed children forever. Thus, in Christ, God gives us a true foundation for the gospel and for our repentance. In the cross, our sins become exposed as deserving of wrath. But also in the cross, Jesus satisfies that wrath for us. At the cross, we do not hear Jesus rejoicing over our demise. Instead, we hear our Lord weeping under our punishment. Jesus did not delight in our judgment but he delighted in us to be judged for us. Therefore, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to us both in truth and in love. The Spirit honestly convicts us of our actual sins, 
He makes us sorrowful for our massive guilt. But then he leads us gently to the sweet forgiveness and mercy of Christ. Christ does not tell lies about us, but he speaks the truth about our spiritual bankruptcy and our utter need of him. And then he meets that need. Indeed, in love, Christ directs us to the certain source of pardon and justification, his own blood and obedience. In this way, Christ shows himself to be your true and trustworthy friend. In the gospel truth, Jesus proves that he is reliable and steadfast to you. Thus, when Jesus tells us that he will never let us go, that his love will never be taken from us, we have a firm foundation for our faith. If Jesus has delivered us from sin and death by his death, how much more will he keep us for the resurrection by his life? Thus, may we be those who speak the truth to one another in love. Let us not lie to each other or falsely accuse one another, thinking that the end justifies the means. Rather, for as we walk in truth expressed in love, then we can know that God takes pleasure in us in Christ. As we live by faith in the integrity of our Savior, God has much use for us. Indeed, graciously, the Heavenly Father uses us and our redeemed selves to bring glory to himself, even so that we might enjoy him forever, which is the best and highest good imaginable. Thus praise the Lord for his truth, his love, and that it will never be taken from us. And all because Christ died and rose again for us. Amen. Let us pray.